Elements, human-centered media storage. Elements.tv, the new centerpiece of your facility, which is so much more than just storage. Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of September 4th, 2020. I am here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. I'm here with screenwriter and No Film School writer, uh, Jason Hellerman. How's it going? And I'm here with filmmaker Kath Tolentino. Hello. Uh, and uh, a frequent guest, Michelle De La Tour, and frequent co-host, Michelle De La Tour, will be returning from her mystery location soon. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about the untimely passing of Chadwick Boseman. We're going to be talking about how not to be desperate. We're going to take a hop back past script hop. All that, little tech news. And a really amazing Ask No Film School about a film festival that rescinded their invitation from Sarah Bullock. All that this week on the No Film School podcast. Woo! So uh, that woo will awkwardly set us up for our transition to our top story this week, which is the untimely and very sad passing of Chadwick Boseman. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I mean, I think every I can't imagine not knowing at this point that at the age of 43, uh, Chadwick Boseman passed away from uh, colon cancer. Uh, it's incredibly sad. It's also uh, one of... It's like the biggest outpouring. Maybe it's just the people I'm connected to on social media, but it's the biggest outpouring of grief and like solidarity in grief that I think I've ever seen. Like there is a real emotional connection people had to his performances that is very real. It could it 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 could just be the people I'm connected to on social, but it it yeah, it's a it is a really sad thing, especially for someone who you know, forty three is the is the beginning of a career in so many ways and uh yeah we wanted to talk a little bit about it yeah i mean i i uh i've seen the same thing i i wrote something on the site i i feel like this is a a bigger the site is called no film school just in case anybody forgot uh i think this is a bigger thing than uh, i don't i don't even want to how do you not compare passings? I don't want to do that. I just want to say this is, he's an actor. He was a star. He was a great actor. He was, by all accounts, a great person. Um, there's a really moving open tribute that um, Ryan Coogler wrote, which Jason covered for us, that was on Hollywood Reporter originally. That is a must read, I think. But I just, the only thing I just really want to say and like bring back up about it is that I think it's really important um, to recognize that the, the reason he had so much impact and he moved so many people is because to see a hero who looks like you is a really important thing. And it's not something that entertain that Hollywood, the movies and television have always done. Not just a sidekick, not comic relief, and certainly not a villain, but like a hero who really embodied all the, you know, ideals and heroism, like to give for for black kids and for their parents to be able to say like this is not just for black people this is like a mainstream uh 
action adventure superhero movie that everyone can watch and enjoy and the hero is black and like that and they can you can see that and he not only embod- he not only played it but I feel like he like embodied a lot of it and he carried himself that way and he which isn't required for anyone but it it made it sort of transcendent beyond just another superhero movie and we need more I think of that representation um, of all kinds of people that everyone can look to their the movies and see like a hero who is like them. Um, and I just think that that's why it hurt in a way that, that is beyond just, you know, it hurt in a special way, in a, in a big way. And I don't know, it's hard for me to speak to it because I'm not the right person to really, but I can just say from where I sit from my experience that it's a unique thing. And he was a unique, special person. And he, he had a big impact that's almost hard to measure. And uh, yeah, it's a huge loss. Yeah. I loved reading Ryan Coogler's, um, I guess his words, I wouldn't call it a eulogy necessarily, but like his testimonial about it, because it's clear that Chadwick Boseman was a man, one of those rare talents that, that embodies this philosophy of um, bringing more representation to the screen for his community, for his people, and also has the talent and the skills to make that happen in a very short lifetime. I mean, if you look at um, just how many films he starred in, playing these incredible heroic characters, both like fictional and historical, it's amazing that someone at age 43 was able to accomplish that much. And um, just reading more about who he was as a person, not just in, in his work, but um, how he carried himself in his everyday interactions with the people that he worked with. And he really seemed like a man who lived and breathed this work. Um, and there are so few people in the industry that, that have those qualities, all those qualities. I also wanted to sort of hit on something, which was, you know, uh, Kath, this is a subject we talked about offline sort of recently is like, how are we going to define sort of what the voices of our generation are? Like the way you think about the 70s and Coppola or the 60s and Peckinpah or, you know, the 50s and Billy Wilder, like how are we going to define what the voices of this generation are? And we're in this interesting space where in terms of theatrically released movies, like most most theatrically released movies are major franchise pictures at this point. So what's interesting for me is really looking for these voices that are able within that franchise system to still do something interesting. So like the first person that really comes to mind is like defining of the decade is Ryan Coogler, mm-hmm. like between Creed and Black Panther, able to work within these like very dominant franchises and able to do something like both of those movies are fantastic. Both of those movies are legitimately quality, good movies. Like and Fruitvale Station. Yeah, but Fruitvale Station is a great movie, not within a franchise. I hope. I hope that there's not a whole franchise of people (laughs) in Fruitvale Station expanded universe. Oh boy! I mean, that would just be very depressing. Um, So what a voice! Also, what a voice from such a young age. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But the ability. But the rare, like the ability to do that within studio structures, within this mega mega corporation, within those things, to like tell a story like Creed, which is such a great movie, um, 
is like that's that's what sort of makes it like an interesting thing because like you know there have been other filmmakers i mean there are many stories i won't repeat them now of people getting six months into prep on a marvel movie and being like you know what i don't think this is going to work like people we love and the ability to figure out how to work within that i think is an amazing thing so like hitting the sort of like voices of your generation like i think the you know it's one movie but john cazale did five movies and we still remember John Cazale 40 years later. Mm, yeah. I almost, that's, him. that's the name that, that came up in my mind just in terms of a Chadwick Boseman comp, you know, it's, it's someone whose presence was as large as the titles they starred in, you know, and someone who was taken tragically very quickly, you know, and mm-hmm. I think it's hard to look at now with hindsight, you know, it's like we, we say names, we hope they're the voices, but, but it really does feel like, you know, with Chadwick Boseman and, and certainly Ryan Coogler, but, you know, we'll keep the focus just on Chadwick for right now. It, it was a guy who I think um, certainly meant so much to the last decade of filmmaking and also was so representative of where filmmaking was going. Um, you wish he was here for the forecast, you know. Um, there's There are so many movies that are robbed of his light that we don't even know that could exist, you know. And I think mm. um, just like John Cazale, it's like, um, it, his light burned very quickly and very brightly. Uh, it sucks uh, that we're here now. He was such, like, I, I'm just, I still can't believe the, the ability. He worked on so many big movies through fighting this disease. And that's another thing about this that, that was just like, in addition to the loss of him, so stunning and, and make me appreciate, made me appreciate his work in a way that was, Oh my God, like this guy was really like dedicated to doing this work and uh, doing it well. Mm. That's so much to fight through and uh, it's amazing, but it's also tragic and um, we'll, you know, remember his movie. We're lucky we got the ones we did, I guess, Mm -hmm. is one way to look at it. Like, you know. Absolutely. And no time, no time like the present to really go back and revisit um, these stellar performances uh, you know, and and hopefully mourn a loss by celebrating what he gave us. And and these are films that will stand the test of time that people will be talking about for a long time, and certainly sharing with future generations. And like, uh, just real quickly on you know, Charles, you touched on <clears throat> like what movies will you remember? Like Black Panther. When I think of like what the modern canon is, Black Panther tops my list. Like I am not a superhero movie person at all. Um, and there are so mo- so many movies, <clears throat> both in the superhero world, but also just generally that are like trying to trying to be political in terms of representation or trying to like check off boxes in terms of diversity or whatever. Black Panther goes so far and above beyond that. Like Ryan Coogler's vision for that film, just his ability to make it. Um, just an incredibly authentic um, experience. Like um, it's, it's uh, how it was motivated by historical figures, how it was motivated deeply by black culture and African culture. Um, It's just like so above and beyond what we see in a lot of mainstream movies these days. And I freaking just love that movie. (laughs) You can talk about it forever. I mean, he, he was a star and like, yeah, we we've watched a lot of people try and be 
be stars. And we've all seen a movie where we're like, oh, that person isn't quite a star. But like he was just one of he was like in the old school Hollywood fashion of like he should just be the lead in things because he's just enjoyable to watch. He just had it. Uh, rest in power, Chadwick Boseman. So uh, our next subject this week is how to avoid feeling desperate. Um, you know, there's a billion things that can make everyone as we pursue a film career feel desperate. I mean, one trip to IMDb for like the ages at which other people accomplished certain things uh, can make many people feel like there's a big clock ticking in the window. P.T. Um, Anderson. <laughs> uh, Anderson. Or um, Xavier, uh, I want to say Xavier Grobay. Is that the Canadian guy who directed a feature at 21? Xavier Dolan. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Xavier Dolan. Um, that he wrote in Orson Welles. Orson Welles. You know, there's a, yeah, Xavier Grobay is a DP. Uh, Xavier, Xavier Dolan. Yeah, I know him. He worked on Looking anyway. Oh, crazy. Tiny universe. So yeah. it's, yeah, there's all of those things. So, I mean, we've talked about Bob Galenson a lot on this podcast because I'm obsessed with him. In the last couple of weeks of the podcast, you can go back. I go on a long run about Bob Galenson's whole thing about like some people go up early, some people go up late. He wrote a whole book about it because he was an economist who hadn't published by his late 30s and he was freaking out. And so he studied what age people have success. Um, and it was very comforting for him and for us to realize many people have it later and that's okay. But... I think it's also worth thinking about uh, the strategies that actually make it um, easier to manage. And I'm going to pull a couple of them out that I use and talk about where I learned them. So one of them, there's a comic book writer. He's also written some movies. This guy, Peter David, I read a book of his when I was like 13. uh, That was his book on writing. And he said that one of his strategies was to be pursuing uh, multiple things at any given time. And so like he was always up for five or six jobs at once and he never tried to get too attached to any of them. Um, and what it meant was most of the time, none of them happened, but sometimes two of them would happen and he would have to choose. But he always thought that that was a better thing to do to be in a situation. I mean, he was a comic book writer. So he was like, do I write for Hulk or Wonder Woman this year? Um, and he, he would rather have that, but pursue multiple and that's something that I've always done and a lot of the more successful people I know have always done is that they're that they don't you know I I know a lot of people have like one project they're flogging but the problem with that is that you know sometimes there might not be prog- progress on that project for a year and so having multiple things you are doing at any given time helps the other thing I think helps with desperation is cash flow um, I think it is much easier not to feel desperate if you have some other form of cash flow, be it a support until job, doing another film set thing, or even outside the film industry. Um, if cash is flowing in some way, I think that helps the feeling of desperation. Those are my personal takes on fighting desperation. This is an interesting topic, and I want to point people towards an interview that is going to be on the podcast if it isn't already elsewhere. Uh, where I interviewed the filmmakers of Peanut Butter Falcon, which is a movie that premiered at South by Southwest and is now available all over the place and stars Shia LaBeouf, LaBeouf, among others. Um, And Jason also covered. So Jason, you know, kind of 
clued me into talking to these guys because he covered the screenplay they wrote. And I bring them up because the story is unbelievable and you got to listen to this interview and, and learn more about these guys and how they made this movie and everything they did to fight like tooth, claw, nail, whatever, <laughs> blood, sweat, tears, all the, the whole shebang. Um, and it's inspirational. And one of the things I came, came away from it with was that that desperation, and they were at various times truly in a state of desperation um, to like just survive, is a good motivator. And it's, it's not something that I ever related to. Like my whole time working in this industry, I was kind of like desperate in the sense of like wanting, but not desperate in the sense of like, I need, I must get, I will not survive otherwise. And they truly approached it that way. And I point people in that direction because I think like there's, you know, there's a lot of ways to build a career um, to get, but cutting through the noise is hard and being absolutely dedicated to the grind and sending email after email and hunting Twitter for any opportunity or any window or any anything to get a shot. Uh, that's not like, that's a way to do it. And it doesn't always work. It's not guaranteed. But I just think that being desperate isn't, it's not fun, but it's certainly a way. And I'm not, I don't know if my, my talking about this is helpful to anybody in any way, but <laughs> I would, I would just say like, it's, it's like somebody out there is going to work that hard. Does that make like sure. somebody's going to work that hard? I don't think. Again. Yeah. Here's my take quickly. It's a desperation is not a strategy. It's just a frame of mind. Right. And, and it's a frame of mind that gets some people into a creative process and helps them, you know, uh, achieve greatness, if you will. Um, but desperation is also a scary, terrifying thing. And I think just riffing on what Charles said um, can be something that holds you back. In fact, desperation can drown you. You know, it's like if you fall in quicksand, you're supposed to lie on your back and keep floating, not splash around because that'll get you to sink. You know, it's it's the same thing in the film industry. Um, roughly, yes, the film industry is like quicksand. A lot of times you feel like you're going nowhere, even though um, really it's a contest of who can stay afloat the longest uh, before the rope arrives. And I, I think... You know, just in general, um, people don't want to work with someone who's desperate, who's like, I have to get this. I need the money. I need this up front. I need blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, obviously, you should get paid. You know, you shouldn't be doing anything for free. You can work that out. There's lawyers. There's contracts. There's a lot of waiting in film and TV. Um, but desperation also feels like maybe you're not doing your best work, right? Is this your fastest work because you need something because you're so desperate? Or is this the thing you put time and energy in? So I would say, like, don't ever think of desperation as a strategy. Just say that, like, if you're starting to feel desperate, think about, like, what Charles said, um, the things that can help you ev like be more even keeled, you know? And, and sometimes I, for yeah. a lot of people that is working, right? For, for me, um, you know, I, I've always been lucky enough to have – uh, hopefully a part-time job on the side. So it's like, even when I'm waiting for those screenwriting checks, I'm not going to go bankrupt doing it. Um, mostly because I have been the guy who almost went bankrupt waiting on a check to arrive, even when I was owed money. Uh, so <laughs> it's like you, when you learn that lesson the hard way, once you tend to not, not want to learn it again. Um, desperation is interesting. You know, I think there's certainly like, we have like the expression, like you reek of desperation. You know, it's like that, that's not good. Yeah. Either. You, you make a really good distinction there that yeah. I want to highlight among the, what's been said. Um, because I agree. And I think you made a really good point. Acting desperate isn't great. 
<laughs> like, like I think that like be, appearing desperate is kind of unpleasant and scary, and it's a scary frame of mind. And I think that's a really good point. I think that like working is. I, I sort of was trying to say something more along the lines of like working as hard as you can and never letting up may be coming from a place of like I need this or I need to do it. Sure. But I think if you ever seem that way, like like you know. Has everyone seen Bowfinger out there? Like, there's there's the, there, there's a there's a um, cliche or a trope of the desperate filmmaker that like nobody really wants to get stuck with. Um, like, oh my god, you're right here in front of me. Read my script, or like, I got to pitch this guy right now. Like, that's not good. I think it's more just like, are you desperate in the sense like, will you work hard every day no matter what? Like in your own space, not necessarily putting it out in the world that way but i think that's a really important distinction well it's it's also it's an energy thing right like i definitely uh i've been in business meetings where it was so clear someone was so desperate for something to happen that i remember after the meeting i turned to someone else and i was like oh my god that was like a first date if someone sat down and grabbed your hand and was like i'm so lonely like there's a certain amount to which you're like you know we like in most business meetings and most pitch meetings, we all want to sit down and act like we're all professionals. And that if like, if we do this business, great. And if we don't do this business, no one's going to die. Um, Cause that like energy is like very off putting. So the, the question is like, which I think goes back to Jason's really nice insult insight, not insult is like, uh, <laughs> but you, I have those you, too. Yeah. <laughs> what do you, Philly, of course he does. What do you do with the energy? Like when you feel that desperation, Because look, I mean, every human being on earth has been lonely, right? Like just because you don't say it as the opening line on a date because you're not insane uh, doesn't mean you've never felt lonely in your life. And just because you don't say it in a business meeting doesn't mean you've never felt it. But what do we do with that energy when we feel it? Like what are the, and one of the trickiest, most frustrating things about film is that like, you know, the advice we give to all of our friends and other medium is like, you know, I got a friend who's a photographer and every time he feels desperate, he just goes out and shoots. He's just like, whatever, I'm not really a street guy, but like, I can do it. It's a thing. I can keep doing the thing. And like writers, at least you can keep doing the thing, but like directors, filmmakers, cinematographers, when the phone doesn't ring, when things aren't going, you know, you, you have to find all of these ways of channeling your energy. Cause you know, it's that, that whole work conquers fear thing. Cause desperation is just another word for fear, right? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I I don't want to like monopolize, but there have been many times in my life where monopolize. I put all my yeah put put all my eggs in one basket, you know, and and say like, oh, I have this one script, and this is going to be the one that gets things going. And look, a lesson I learned very early on is that that usually is the egg that doesn't hatch, you know. Um, so some you know the only way I know how to do it now, and just saying is is to write a lot you know it's like when i have that one script out i take a break for a weekend or a week but then i'm writing the next thing it's on to the next thing um my manager uses this phrase a lot um you have a lot of plates spinning you know and it's like you have the plates spinning you take a weekend and you work on something polish it maybe and you you hit that plate with your hand and speed it back up send it to a different producer while you wait and then you get to work on what the next plate is you know and, and eventually you've got so many plates in the air and spinning um it can get a little unwieldy, but you're never too upset if one of those plates fall, right? Because if you're only spinning one plate and it breaks, you got to start all over. But if you're spinning 50 plates and it breaks, it's you know, it's still impressive you have 50 things going. You know, one of those might keep going. And I think that's really a good way to look at it. And 
look, if you, it, like you said, it is easier for writers. You should be just writing the next thing. Um, for directors, you know, like I would challenge you to like recut your work or go out within your iPhone and shoot something and cut it, whether it's a spec commercial or something else that you could either monetize that, that keeps you going or, you know, that could accentuate your creative flow. You know, I do think there's, there's less and less excuses, the better and better technology gets, um, you know, you should, we should be doing this to not be desperate. You should be working, whether it's like that nine to five job that keeps you stable with money. So you're not totally reliant on film work or it's working like, Oh, I'm getting better at my craft. I'm putting in my, uh, I hate this analogy, but the 10,000 hours, you know, I'm putting in my 10,000 hours. Um, I think those are the best ways forward. Catherine, how do you do it with directing? <laughs> yeah, I think all of this is really interesting. Um, uh, there's a great, uh, speech that Ava DuVernay gave um, at Film Independent in 2013. You can Google it. Just Google Ava DuVernay desperation. And she talks about like how this was what held her back in the beginning. She had uh, a really great script, but she was so eager to get it made. Everywhere she went, she was like, I need to make this connection. I need to get this person to greenlight me. I need to get this person to give me money. And she said, it took her a while to realize that people could sense that 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 need and it made it harder to trust that the work was good. Um, and so she realized that her effort <clears throat> could be better spent towards like continuing to work on the script, continuing to build her own opportunities. And um, I think that's a really helpful message. I think that all of us in this podcast right now have been doing this for long enough that we have gotten to a point where we understand that opportunities will come. Welcome to the future of remote editing. Imagine being a thousand kilometers away from your post-production suite. With Elements Satellite, you can easily access your editing workstation remotely with extreme responsiveness, unmatched frame rate, and ultimate security. Due to the immense demand for high bandwidth and low latency, video production is often too challenging for traditional remote access tools. Elements Satellite is the first remote access solution purpose built for the media entertainment industry. Now, editing can be done with superb quality from anywhere in the world without any restrictions. Arrange your free trial at elements.tv satellite today. All right, moving on. We're going to take a quick hop by Script Hop. So just a reminder, Script Hop is a script package format that allows you to have your screenplay, but also casting suggestions and animated intro, which I'm very, very suspicious of, and a whole bunch of other sort of multimedia elements to sort of zazz up a script and bring it into the 21st century. I'm suspicious of the whole thing. I'm especially suspicious of the animated intro. But the whole thing just seems like like uh, the script works. It's not broken. I just want to give us a little context first. Script Hop is, is a tool that we covered on nofilmschool.com that Jason actually used and wrote about. So we're excited that even though we talked about it last week, we have Jason here now to tell us a little bit more about why it's exciting from the inside because we did a little bit of guessing last week. And now, you know, we'll go into it. 
yes, I didn't get to do the animated intro um, just because I don't, I didn't have an animation made to put on there and uh, play around with. But I do think it's a useful tool. I mean, look, I'll just say this. Um, just in terms of the way Hollywood is now, you want to have uh, an idea that has a lot of elements to it. I've been doing a lot of TV stuff recently. So like I loaded up a TV script I wrote, plus the Bible, uh, plus a lookbook of people who I thought would be interesting for the characters. Uh, and then also like I had little character bios. And I, I thought that was great. You know, like at the end of the day, if I was sending this to an actor or actress, um, that was going to be the lead of my thing. I'd want them to see, hey, here is the script. Here is uh, a little bio of the character. Here's a lookbook that, that I made just for the main character, um, what they're going to do. And then also, like, I included a season Bible type deal where it was like, here, over the course of season one, you'll learn blah, blah, blah. And it was all just a click away. I thought that was really simple. And just uh, having been an assistant before in this industry, um, when you send that stuff to actors, it sucks to attach four PDFs to a document. You don't know who opened it. You don't know where it goes. You don't know who forwarded it from there. Um, this is a really nice thing where it generates a link. So you can click on the link and it's all there and, and you know who clicked on it. You know who accessed it and read it and why. Um, I think that's really useful. And, and just in terms of the way Hollywood works now with packaging and things like that for agents. Uh, look, agents are super nice people. No, that's not true. Agents are people. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they're you not can say that if that's how you want to sound on the podcast, Jason. Sure. They're, they're, they're not <laughs> creatives. And like, I think the idea of sending out something where you can add in actresses or actors um, and give yourself like that woke rainbow of people just so they don't come back and say, here's the 11 white people that can do this is great. Uh, if you do your research and see who they rep, you can also include those photos. I do think it's, it's advantageous. And look, Everything now, we talk a lot about packaging in this industry. Um, that's the way people are looking at it. And this is you basically creating your own dream package um, to show people. I, got, I, I don't know. Look, I worked for a lot of producers um, when I was an assistant. And I worked for directors and writers. And I can imagine all of them using this. Because, again, it's just sending a link. Like, if we had a project, I worked for a producer overall at Sony. It was, like, such a pain in the ass to send the book, the script, and samples and stuff like that. If you had one thing the ability to generate a link to send and say like, here, Amy Pascal, here's a link. And once you click on this link, you can access all the information we have. And not only can you access it, but I can share that same link with the five other pods we're going out to within Sony. Uh, that that would be a big deal. Like maybe it doesn't make sense for you, an amateur writer. Do you know what I mean? Like I could understand why, but I think if you were trying to go out and get agents or get managers, you could say like, here's the breadth of my idea, you know, especially look, Catherine, you're a director. It's like, you'd want to include the script, maybe a director's statement, maybe an article it's based on, you know, Hey, this is from this New York times article, all at the click of one button. You look, I, I don't know why this is not, uh, I, I could, I, I can't get. think of, I can't Wait, think of I, anything that's bad about that. You know what I mean? Aside from it being different, I can't think of anything that's bad. Yeah. So, so here is my counter argument that makes me super suspicious of this. I think that uh, for the vast majority, I mean, I can certainly see scenarios for um, producers to use this quite effectively. I think if yeah. you are just a screenwriter out in the universe, submitting your script, trying to get an agent or trying to get it out to directors, 
assigning a whole bunch of your casting ideas and stuff like agents want to read it or have their assistant read it and then have people from their agency suggested for all of the casting roles and think about packaging and like there's a whole system in place for doing that and like if you have the discipline to go through and research who's repped at which agency and then put together a cast list for each agency so when you're sending to creative artists it's all their people and when you're sending to wme it's all their people great you should totally do that and script top can help but i think in reality for most writers and it seems like it's targeted at writers for most writers. I actually think that's beside the point. And like the real focus should just be spend all of that extra time you were going to spend making the package fancier, making the script better. I can see it as a producer tool. That's the place where I see it as a tool. I'm still really suspicious of anything when I hear animated opening because it reminds <laughs> me of bad flash websites from 2004. But I could certainly, I mean, look, I've worked on tons of pitch packets for movies and movies that have gotten made and projects that have gotten made. And like there are systems in place that operate in a certain fashion. We already make lookbooks. We already make all of these things. If you go to the website, the website says we are trying to create what we think will be the new platform for submitting scripts. And I'm saying I'm actually suspicious that this change is going to happen. Changeovers like that are very slow in Hollywood and take a long time. I mean, as recently as 10 years ago, people were still picking up paper scripts at all of the studios. So like, I just don't see that the value add is going to be enough for people to change their workflows. All right. With that, we are moving on to a new subject. Um, in tech news, the subject we are talking about today is a product called SyncSketch. SyncSketch is an online review tool for reviewing edits. It's primarily targeted at animation and VFX. And uh, what was really interesting about SyncSketch, what makes them different from competitor tools like uh, Frame.io and Whipster is that they built around something I thought was really cool, which is simultaneous review. So we've all been in those situations where we're dealing with asynchronous review, where you're sending out an edit and you're getting notes and you're responding to those notes hours later or whatnot. SyncSketch is built around the idea that two people sit down live. Both people can control the playhead, can play it, can pause it, can talk about it. And it's sort of an interesting thing to think about in terms of the notes giving process on editorial. I don't think it's going to take off in a lot of arenas because, you know, asynchronous notes I th are very popular with a whole lot of people. But, uh, you know, people like the luxury of being able to look at it whenever they want. But I think that there's a, uh, a real benefit when you're working with an artist to be able to have that like real time conversation of this isn't working for me for this reason and really being able to dig in. One of my big frustrations with platforms like um, Frame I own Whipster is that lack of a conversation. And I like the idea that SyncSketch is really designed for sort of an amorphous, more flexible conversation. How, how is it different from a Frame.io? Frame.io doesn't let two people watch at the same time and both play or pause. So I put something on Frame.io. I wait a couple, uh, you know, I send it off. An hour or two later, I get notes and they're time-coded notes. And Frame.io has way more sophisticated integrations than SyncSketch. Those notes can flow straight over into Final Cut or straight over into Resolve. Like the, it's, a, it's a much more fluid system. SyncSketch is a younger company and they're more focused on VFX. So they integrate with stuff like Maya and Unreal they don't integrate with Final Cut. But what's cool about it is that thing of you get on a call and both of you are looking at something real time together. You can pause, they can pause. You want to watch something again, you can drag the slider back, the slider drags on their side. It's that simultaneous viewing experience, which is sort of closer to what we used to get in the client suite when we'd be in a suite together and you'd Couldn't sit there. Couldn't it get to, like 
sorry to interrupt, but couldn't it get like really complicated if like two people can can like I'm trying is there a potential like log jam of like two people like <laughs> like fighting for the about, Yeah, at first I was like, I don't know if I would want like the person that I'm working with to be able to like adjust the playhead if it's like if I'm the one editing it. But then I was like, I guess it would save a lot of time in terms of you don't have to keep saying like, oh go back to 14. No, the previous scene. No, wait, it's like after that one, okay. You know, it might save a lot of that like finding the moment that you're looking at time, which could be really great, actually. Yeah. I mean, I had the same thing of like, how would that work? But then, you know, it's sort of a like, yeah, when you want to just go back to a shot, you can just take yourself back to that shot. Mm -hmm. I just like that it forces people to be in touch with each other at the same time. I love Frame.io. I use it all the time. But asynchronous is only good for certain things. And what I think is interesting about SyncSketch is just because you have to get in a phone call with each other or Zoom or whatever while you view it, I think you're going to talk about other stuff and have bigger conversations. It's going to force a conversation. And it's mainly uh, like animation is the key. Like So it's, well, first off, it has a free tier, which a lot of competitors don't have, um, which is nice for indie filmmakers. It was designed for uh, VFX and animation where they can like really go frame by frame with each other. But there's no reason you couldn't use it for editorial notes if you felt like it. Like you can put up a three minute cut if you want and you could use it for that if you want it. All right. And then our last story this week, Sarah Bullock. My festival acceptance got taken back. A short film of mine got into a festival and got into a women's film festival in California. I'm from Canada and screening fees tend to be more common here. So I asked if screening fees would be paid. They said, no, I asked, well then what benefit from the, would I get from the festival since it's online? There wouldn't be any networking. What kind of viewership numbers did they expect? And one of the organizers, a guy, responded defensively, pointed out their competitive 15% acceptance rate. Um, and I did the math and responded, that means that they probably got $30,000 in entry fees because they she knew how many people got in and 15% acceptance. And so he rescinded the acceptance and changed the status on Film Freeway. I'm feeling pretty shit and was wondering, has anyone had a similar experience? Um and yeah, honestly, festivals are a complicated business. First off, I didn't know Canadian festivals gave screening fees. I've never heard of a festival giving screening fees. Is that something other people have experienced? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Where? The festival, that I, <laughs> the festival that I program for, we've talked about this a little bit. A number of films that got accepted asked just asked for a screening fee. And then the festival directors had to evaluate whether they could afford it or not. Um, What's a screening fee for those of us who don't know? So a screening fee is basically, and you can, you're more likely to get a screening fee if your film has gotten into one of the first tier festivals and has done very well on the festival circuit so that smaller festivals programming you, you're more of an, an, an asset to them and to their program than the other way around. And it so, means they pay you. It means and they, so pay they, you. they would pay you. Yeah. Like a, a you know, a, a small sum, um, but oftentimes films with a sales agent um, will, you know, the sales agent can speak on the filmmaker's behalf and request a screening fee um, or a distributor. Um, so, so there are short films out there that request screening fees when they screen at festivals and uh, it's hit or miss, you know, whether the festivals can provide it. It also depends on how much you ask on how well your film has done on the festival circuit. Um, 
I would say that there's no harm in asking, but at the same time, like, you, you know, festivals are also trying to make ends meet. $30,000 is not a huge budget. Um, considering that you have a staff of people to pay, you're probably partnering with some sort of online, um, you know, uh, what do you call it? Like a seed and spark or streaming some sort of online venue. Yeah. $30,000 is not a lot of money to put on a festival. And so it's understandable that they might not be able to offer that. Um, but it is a really tough situation, you know? Yeah. I think that, um, I feel strongly that a lot of festivals out there are cons and I feel that a lot of festivals take advantage of the fact that people are willing to spend money to have their film potentially shown somewhere. They will not screen all the movies, obviously. And I've had the experience of, of seeing the screening and thinking, wow, that's like what, that's what you're going to do for the film. Like really that's it. Um, And that's hard on a filmmaker when you have to, pay to send your films to so many. So I think my always when this kind of thing comes up is I think people should be really careful what festivals they're willing to pay to send their films to. And I think in this instance of this story, um, I don't know the festival and obviously, you know, the, you didn't mention the name, but it's possible that they just didn't like being called out that way for what they're, you know, and, and you probably don't want to be there anyway. Like you could probably, like if they're not, if they're willing to rescind your acceptance over that question, which is a harmless question, I think that there's something really like wrong there. And there's a lot of festivals that are like a money grab, honestly, and not, it's a racket sometimes. I think there's a lot of great ones and they do great things and they're fun and there's great ways to meet filmmakers and, like see movies that you're not going to see maybe elsewhere and help launch careers and all that stuff. But I think there's also a, a side of it that is very un, um, unseemly and think, unfair. Yeah. Particularly <laughs> given that everything is now online, I think it is a very valid and useful question to ask every festival that you've been invited to, what will the online programming look like? Will you be, you know, will you be scheduling Q and A's? Will I be able to network with um, alumni or industry folks that are affiliated with your festival? Um, like, you know, are the films going to be geotagged? How long is the film going to be online? Like, all those sorts of questions are really relevant because there are some festivals that have not transitioned smoothly into online and some that really have and that are able to make the online programming, you know, almost as good as if it were um, in person. So. I definitely say like you should ask those questions up front. It is a real shame that they re- responded in this way. I mean, I, I feel like, cause Jason's here too. Like we've talked about and he's written about on the site, things like screenplay competitions. Like some of these competitions are taking your money and, there's some question as to what even winning them brings you. And I think you have to yeah, ask. If you're going to, if you're going to enter anything, just do your research. Who's won in the past? What has winning got them? Do you have a shot to win and, and is winning worth it, right? Just because a lot of these smaller contests, I feel like we covered, they want, they'll absolutely want your money to cover the overhead, um, <laughs> but it might not get you anywhere. And you might be going up against things that have automatically got in without paying an entry fee um, because they screened at other festivals, you know, that maybe you, I don't want to say you have no shot to beat, but like if they have an automatic Sundance entry fee or something like that, and they're just trying to be like the award tour, 
you know, of like uh, what this is, then maybe it's not worth your 50 bucks. And a lot of times it's a lot more than 50 bucks. You know, screenplay contests in general, uh, I think if you do your research, you want to know, has anyone that won been repped? Um, have they ever gone on to do things? Do agents, managers, lawyers, whoever uh, even look at this? And, you know, in my mind, and I've written about it on the site, there are probably only two or three actual worth your money screenplay contests. Uh, you know, Nickel, Austin, and I can't think of the third. So that there might only be two. You know, maybe, and the Blacklist website, I think if you do it right and, and are smart about it. So just something to think about. Just going along with George said, um, at the end of the day, these things sometimes are made to make money. And if someone gets upset that you ask an innocent question, because that's what it, the way it seems, um, then they might not have been valid in the first place. And I would just earmark that festival as something you don't apply to in the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and but warn I, people. You, but I also you know feel what? like, though, there's the, the, the way that you ask the question, too. Because if you're asking, Absolutely. Them, well, why should I screen with you guys if you're not going to give me a screening fee or if right. it's going to be online? It's like, well... <laughs> Playing at a festival does have its benefits regardless. I mean, if the programmers, you know, are the types of programmers that will want to help foster your career in the future that you can stay in touch with, if they know other folks that can help you, like if you get the sense that that team takes this seriously and wants to support you as a filmmaker, then coming at them with a question of like, well, why should I screen with you guys? I can also understand why someone would take offense to that question, depending on how it's phrased, because a lot of these programmers and festival directors are really trying to do their best to like help support emerging artists. So yeah, I appreciate getting the perspective of a person who's been a festival programmer on here. So like, I can't go unchecked when I start talking about how festivals are trying to scam people, but I, but I do, but I do feel like, like, I think to echo something and, and like, I want to circle back to Charles on this too, but, um, you know, when I like my last festival experience was before COVID, which feels like a million years ago, but and it was well before COVID. But I always thought of it in terms of like, well, I just want people to see my movie. You know, like I want to go somewhere where people are going to be in the audience. And, and, and I think that now that it's like online, there's a valid point of like, well, is this going to make any more people see it than if it's just on like YouTube or something? Like, I think there's a valid concern of just like, you know, official selection wreaths in your trailer, like, like every, some, there's so many ways to get those. You could even fake them, honestly, but like, like <laughs> winning an audience award, like I, all these things are like within reach, you know, like for a film that's done or short, like maybe not from Sundance, but from somewhere. And I think that, uh, the question maybe to ask that Jason kind of touched on is like, what do you hope to get out of this particular festival? And, you know, asking them in a nice way, the way you said, Kath, like, is that, is that realistic here or not, um, is a good way to approach it because you can honestly go down the list and like submit to so many festivals, you'll like bankrupt yourself. Like there's so many things you can submit to that you should really pick, choose your shots and know why you're doing it. And I definitely remember my festival experiences. Sometimes I'd be like, why did I do this? Like, and I even got into this one and why am I here? Like, what's this helping me with? Yeah, I was just gonna say also another reason to budget some money for festival submissions. So when you're yeah. going out to your rich friends or your GoFundMe or your Kickstarter, you can say, you know, a thousand bucks or two thousand bucks or three thousand bucks, whatever kind of level film you're making are going to be reserved for film festival submissions. And people will get that. But but also, I really wanted to second something George said, which is that like it all of the other things you mentioned are great, Kath, of like a screener that uh, or programmer that pays attention to your career and helps you later and connections, everything. 
but like sometimes you just want to watch your movie with an audience and like, mm. and, and, and more than anything else, an audience of strangers. Like we've all been to a cast and crew screening where there's 200 people, you know, or like knew the wardrobe or something in a room, but like a legit, especially with short films, getting to be in a 300 seat theater with strangers for short films is hard. Like it's just not, you know, people don't go to the short films screenings very often. So like I remember 20 years ago when my film was going to festivals where I didn't even, you know, I didn't even know I should have been asking for after the first couple of festivals, I guess I should have asked for screening fees. I didn't even know. Um, just being in a room in like Korea or Arizona or where, wherever with, you know, however many people watching the movie was enough. And like, I don't know if any of those programmers would have helped me later or if there's somewhere. So like. That is the whole thing about a festival experience. I suspect that this question in the end, Sarah, was a miscommunication. I suspect that you felt like it was very fair to be like, but you guys got $30,000. What are you doing for people? And I think that that probably, like anybody who know, like the person working at the festival who's like, this festival costs us $300,000 a year, or $30,000 in screening fees, or like one-tenth of what we need. We also have to have a vodka sponsor, and we have to have donations. Like, we're, we're just scraping by here probably got offended by that and i'm sure you asked it innocently i think this probably we're going to chalk up to a miscommunication um but i i think it is fair to ask like what do they do about that in a digital age like yeah I what think is that's it like a- to have your movie i mean kath you have a movie in a digital age coming out this fall mm-hmm. yeah and the festival run for it has been very hit and miss um not to call anyone out but yeah, there are some festivals that have done a great job of transitioning to online, which is very difficult. And there are some festivals that just haven't had the team, haven't had the infrastructure, haven't had the resources or the know-how. And so the the in terms of like panels, Q&As, networking, all that stuff just falls by the wayside. And then it's just like, oh, my movie is on this like um, website where people have to pay money to see it when they could just, you know, email me and ask me for the link because the only people watching it are my friends and family anyway, you know. the I feel like who set the bar for me so far was Palm Springs. Palm Springs did an incredible, incredible the movie? job. The um, movie on Hulu? Or? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Palm Springs Short Fest. Yes. They were great. Uh, I, I just, yeah, I think we should really keep as a group, you know, and, and I'm just saying this also to our audience, like to help us with this, I want to really keep an eye on how the festival world changes through all this and what people's experiences are and what the pros and cons are. And, you know, if you have questions about it or if you have answers from your experiences, because every filmmaker is going to be navigating this and it's changing. It's changed so much that I think information about it is helpful for people um, for us to share. But it's kind of a fascinating, we talked about, you know, people starting to apply to Sundance not that long ago, even though we're not really in the, you know, Sundance is a long way off, but just that that's on our minds always with film, film festivals. So stuff to I, keep an eye out for. I will say one thing that I learned recently because um, I program for this festival, but I also am now reading scripts for a screenplay competition. And um, one thing that came up was um, providing feedback for people who submit and Um, So I'm reading for Cinequest right now, and their philosophy is if someone wants the feedback on their script and writes in requesting that feedback, we should provide it. Um, I did not realize that that was something that people do. I just sort of have been submitting to festivals all along and never asking for feedback. But now that I know, like, oh, I could totally just be an empowered 
filmmaker and ask these people like, hey, why didn't my film make it? I'm just curious if you could share the feedback that the programmers wrote. Some festivals might go for this, some might not, but it doesn't hurt to ask in the same way that doesn't hurt to ask like, oh, what's your online festival going to provide me in this era? But don't, I would would add on to that, don't expect it to make any sense. Like for (laughs) instance, I did, well, no, I did, I like, you know, I had a great festival run with my thesis and it was great and I got to make a feature and it was like as good a run as you could have. And I didn't get into DC Film Fest, which was my hometown festival, where I wrote a letter being like, hey, this is my hometown festival. I'm going to be able to bring out all of my old friends. I went to high school here. I went to college here. I'm going to fill the theater. It's going to be great. I didn't get in. And then they sent me the feedback from the programmer, which was basically like, this is the best short film I've ever seen. I cried. We have to show this. And I was like, so, so what? I don't under, like, I want, I just wanted to go watch it with all my high school friends. Yeah. It was, so like, you might get feedback from the programmer and it might not make any sense. But in some ways I would, I would really love to get that feedback because I would take that as like, oh my gosh, so my film isn't bad. It was some other reason that I didn't get programmed. And like, I shared your sentiment. I really wanted to get into San Francisco uh, Film Festival, Um, did not get in. And then later um, heard one of the programmers on a panel who said, we basically accept like less than a dozen short films. It's like, they just accept very, very few. Um, And so that was very good to hear. Like, oh, it's just highly competitive for that particular festival. Yeah, I kind of assumed that somehow I'd crossed that programmer somewhere. Like there was bad blood that I didn't remember. But. No, it was probably just that like somewhere along the line, someone said, oh, we just can't program this one because there's too many or it's too much yeah. like this other one or whatever. Yeah. All right. So that, Sarah, we drifted a bit from your answer, but I think we probably answered way more thoroughly than you were hoping. So I hope that was something. And I'll put a little thing in the comments to let you know, please ask us questions at ask at no film school or on the no film school boards. All right, folks, let's plug our pluggables. So yeah, I'm Catherine Tolentino. I'm a writer, director, filmmaker. Um, You can see my work at catherinetolentino.com. And my short film, Parachute, is currently on the festival circuit, as is my short film, Ahora Que Te Has Ido, which means Now That You're Gone in English. Um, If you check out my website, you can see what festivals we're playing at soon. Uh, I'm a programmer for Salute Your Shorts Film Festival in LA, which is running for the next week, though by the time this podcast posts it the films might not be up anymore and i also read for cinequest screenplay competition which is open for submissions until november 13th go ahead and look us up on film freeway uh i'm jason hellerman at jason hellerman on twitter at jason hellerman on instagram uh those are the two places you can find me i don't have much going on but if you want to learn how to write a screenplay uh download the free screenwriting book at nofilmschool.com now is the perfect time there's nothing else to do in quarantine you have no more excuses just sit down and write your script um trust me it'll be a cathartic process and if it's not at least it'll eat up some of your day i have no more excuses oh no charles you want to go Sure, I'm Charles Hain uh, at Charles Hain on Instagram and uh, Twitter, uh, charleshain.com. You can see my work. Uh, and saltypirate.tv is the web series I wrote and directed that is on Amazon Prime right now. And I'm George Edelman, editor in chief at No Film School. 
Thanks so much as always for listening. Please like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at No Film School. The Facebook page is called No Film School. The website is called NoFilmSchool.com. I always plug the screenwriting ebook, so Jason stole that. It's if you go to the website, the homepage, it's up at the top there, and you can see it. It's it's in blue, like a you know nice little link, and you can click on it and get it, and it's awesome. And all you have to do is subscribe to our newsletter, which you want to do anyway, probably. Please also check out our other podcasts. We have tons of great interviews. Um, pretty soon, we're going to have one coming up with Walter Murch, who is just a legend in the world of filmmaking, and it was a joy to talk to him. And I can't wait for people to hear it. Um, as always, uh, follow us and like us and send your questions. And thanks to you guys for being on here. And thanks to everybody for listening. <laughs>